that kind of gave us the context like, okay, what we're building is basically a technology company that's going to provide value for Muslims in the general sense. More specifically, we're basically taking artificial intelligence applications, applying them and delivering value to Muslims. Assalamu alaikum, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the IFG podcast. And this week, we've gone for more of a tech-themed or a tech-flavored slant, much more so than even normal. Like, you know, you might think of us as tech-savvy, but the guys that we're talking to today, they're using artificial intelligence, machine learning, and bringing it to the Quran, which I think is absolutely fascinating. Anas is one of the co-founders of Tartil.io, and I've got that right, right? That's the website. We rebranded we to AI, Tartil AI. <laughs> uh, okay, Tartil.ai, and Tartil, it came across my desk a few years ago, actually, I think, um, at least it feels like that, where, you know, I thought that the project was just super cool, and the thing that started it off for me that I found really fascinating was where you can recite the Quran, and the deal tells you whereabouts in the Quran you're reading from, which is actually kind of useful for me because I often forget where the thing is. So yeah, that's where the story started. But then I got to know the team at Tartil and I just found the whole story absolutely fascinating. So Anas, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you onto the podcast. I just have luck for the introduction and uh, pleasure to meet you, Brian. I think I met also, the first time I met you guys for the Mahsan, uh, I was still at Amazon. I was just like putting my feelers out there, trying to see what people were thinking about the project and whatnot. Alhamdulillah, he, he gave some really good advice on in terms of like how we should proceed and move forward. So it's great to be here and great, great to meet you as well. And uh, you yourself have also given us some, some good advice, Alhamdulillah. And the stuff that you guys put out there in terms of like the marketing and uh, or like in terms of like market sizing, understanding the Muslim market, I think it's also been pretty helpful for us. Oh, Anas, I'd love to hear a bit more about your story. Like, where did you grow up? You know, you mentioned that you used to work at Amazon. How did that whole thing come about? And I'd just love to hear your story up to Tartil. Yeah, that's a, that's a long story. So I was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, not your Cambridge. Um, <laughs> and we lived there until I was like third grade. We moved to the UAE. So we lived in Abu for about eight years. Uh, I came back on my own just to live with my aunt here in Boston, um, just to finish my high school. So schools in the UAE weren't accredited, so trying to get into like a U.S. college wouldn't be as easy. So I moved here, attended the same Islamic school I attended from before, fin- just finished my senior year. We had like a dual enrollment program, so it was nice, you know, it was like two days in the school and then three days we just like go wild in Boston, basically. It was, it was really fun, alhamdulillah. And then after that, I attended Northeastern. All my work was in the robotics field. I had nothing to do with, you know, AI speech recognition per se. And so I worked in that space in terms of research and industry as well. But I think around my junior year, I think this was around 2018, where I saw a friend of a friend post on Facebook that they're starting something called the Tercil Challenge, um, which is basically just collecting data for enabling machine learning applications for the Quran. I basically reached out to this person and I was like, hey, I want to help out. This was like a month after like the I was working on it from there. So that's my side of the story leading up to Tarsil and getting started with them. 
But I also want to give the tertial side of the story to show you like how it kind of like converges. So technically, the space of um, you know Quran and AI was I think originally thought of by um, his brother named Hamad Musa, who's my co-founder now. He built an app called Iqra. Uh, I think it was back in 2016, which uses like Apple and Google's speech to text engines to just search the Quran using your voice. He met, who's also now my co-founder, Abdul Latif, who were thinking about this idea and project. And like, hey, you know, we really need to build something in this space. He was at Coursera, I think, and then moved to Facebook. Abdul Latif was at NASA, moved to Twitter. Um, so they were just thinking and brainstorming about this idea. 2018, Abdul Latif hosted a Muslim hackathon, one of the first Muslim hackathons in the Bay Area. That's where the Tertil Challenge came up. There were a few people working on the project. Most of them went on to do their own thing. I think it was only Abdul Latif from that project that stayed on to continue working on Tartib and continue working on, you know, expanding our data set. And so a month after the hackathon project, I joined in and started to help out. That's how those two, I guess, kind of like timelines converge. And then from there, my journey to Amazon is also another thing. But just to continue the timeline of Tartib, you know, for about a year, we were working on it part time. You know, it was just like a side project. I'd go to Facebook, I'd munch on Muhammad's free food. <laughs> and in the evenings, we'd like work together. In the mornings, we'd go to Fed and hit the gym and that'd be like our brainstorming session. And then the evening would be like the coding sessions as well, or like, you know, just whatever extra time we have. But it wasn't until last year that we decided, okay, this is something that, you know, has legs, you know, we're able to get some traction and people like are using the app. So we're like, okay, now it's time to take this full time. You asked me about my journey to Amazon. I wanted to continue in the research field um, and just be like a robotics researcher. I was adamant on doing a PhD. Uh, alhamdulillah, like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't make that happen. I had alhamdulillah, like publications and good recommendation letters and all that, you know, connections and whatnot. But in the end, I got accepted to nowhere. Like everyone was surprised. The only place I got accepted to was actually Oxford, but no funding. That was like, it was adding salt to the wound. It was interesting. So I decided instead to apply to Amazon. I was a teaching assistant for just a robotics course. And I reached out to the PM and I was like, hey, do you guys have any jobs? And they're like, yeah, send me a resume. And in two weeks, I got the offer letter. It was like first week was basically interview. Second week was an on-site. And then I got an offer letter. So subhanAllah, I was working six months towards the PhD, but instead, you know, Los Fantales in like two weeks just opens up this door. I was like, all right, go down this path. And alhamdulillah, that was good because then I went to the Bay Area, met Muhammad, Muhammad Abdul Latif, and we got together and that's how we started working together, alhamdulillah. Amazing. That, that sounds like a really fascinating story. And I guess many people will never have or never will experience an Amazon interview process. What was that like? And where did you end up working? Were you like working on their robotics, I guess, like on their warehouse side of things? Or like where did they have their robotics stuff come in? So Amazon, so this is very interesting. You have Amazon Retail and you have AWS. They're actually two very separate entities. And even internally, they're pretty different, especially in terms of culture. Amazon Robotics is actually housed here in Massachusetts, up north in North Reading. I visited the warehouse a few times. My first internship like offer was with Amazon Robotics, but instead I went for iRobot. But they have their office here. On the West Coast, they have most of their AWS offices, so their Amazon Web Services. And the team that I worked with was called AWS RoboMaker. So they're basically building a platform for this toolkit called ROS, Robot OS. 
um, which basically is used to you know build robotics applications. So it's kind of like a layer around it to help with development and deployment. My role specifically was actually all open source. So our team was dedicated to supporting this open source project, Ross, and you know working on that. Folks in Amazon Robotics would use some services in AWS or Roommaker, as well as like other startups and whatnot. It's a typical AWS service, but that was most of my role. We didn't really do robotics per se. We were like kind of doing the robotics tools, but like you, you had to have like a knowledge of robotics to kind of understand like, okay, this is what a roboticist needs. You're the customer and, and the product. Kind of like with Tertiel, we're both the customer and the builder. And how was the interview? Yes, the interview. I think it, most big tech companies have kind of converged on a similar process. Amazon's a bit, you know, I think it's slightly different in that they have this thing called a bar raiser. Depending on your role, it's a five-step interview. Four of them are technical. One is behavioral. The behavioral one is usually with your potential manager. The three technical ones, three of the technical ones are usually with people in your team or, you know, ancillary to it. The fourth one is someone who's completely outside of your team, has nothing to do with you or your team. And he's called the bar raiser. Basically what he does is he makes sure, like he usually gives the tough questions. Um, and he's the one that actually holds the decision power. So during the interview process, you go through the whole interview and then you have the bar raiser. He's the one that gives you the most difficult question and like, you know, literally raises the bar. And Amazon basically, the question they ask when they hire someone is, is this person better than 50% of the candidates here? Very, very cutthroat. So once the candidate goes through the interview process, the four people have to convince the bar raiser that this is the person to hire. Like we want to hire this person. If the bar raiser says no, the guy doesn't get hired even if the team like is very convinced. Usually it doesn't end in that case, but like if the bar raiser says no, the guy doesn't get hired, even if the whole team wants him, like they don't have a convincing reason. Otherwise, the person does get hired. Obviously, there's a, usually a phone screening or two. Um, I only had one phone screening before you get into the onsite interview. But once you go into the onsite, you know, they just, they fly you out and you do the interview process. Really, really interesting. I guess that sounds like a lot of interviews, but were they, were they all just like crammed into one day, basically? Um, yeah, exactly. Because you were just there, right? Uh, exactly. Makes a lot of sense. You've now gone full-time, I think, on Tartil, right? You know, you've kind of, you're like a kite now kind of floating around in the air without any anchoring to like a major, you know, big tech company. How does that feel? And, you know, how are you guys finding it? How are you guys finding the whole, you know, startup life and and all of that? Yeah. So I'll be honest, I did want to find an anchor when I left Amazon. And so uh, alhamdulillah, I was accepted to CMU's master's program uh, in robotics. So I was like, okay, let me do this. Unfortunately, at the same time, COVID hit and, you know, it didn't really make sense to, to do the work. I did one semester and then I went on leave. When I was on leave, I was basically working on it full time. I did a, like a very small research project with, with Toyota, um, with an old colleague of mine. But after that, I was like, okay, you know, I need to focus on this full, full time. So just... Yesterday, I actually officially dropped out from CMU. And initially, I was, you know, like you mentioned, it's nice having an anchor. But at some point, you realize it's not necessary. I personally was always thinking that, and then we have this mindset, especially with like our parents and, you know, the older generation. You have to be a doctor. You have to be like, you know, PhD or master's. And so I had some pressure from my parents. 
Um, so that's one of the reasons why I sticked with, with CMU just to hold on to it. It's like, okay, yeah, sure, I'm doing my master. I'm on leave, but you know, I have there. And then I realized, okay, it's not necessary. And in fact, just putting the focus into the company, having just two weeks to a month of focus, honestly, can do just wonders. For example, when when we were working on, on the project part-time, I remember this was like last Ramadan, we were basically just putting out like two years ago, we were putting out fire after fire and like we were barely holding our, our ground. We were like, okay, we were burned out. Like there was, there was so many bugs, so many issues, you know, we, we couldn't handle the load. This Ramadan was much easier, you know, when we had the time to focus. Obviously, you know, you still had some backlog of like, you know, people complaining, customer support, all that stuff. But there was a night and day difference in terms of like the workload and being able to support and focus on the company. And it feels nice in the end because granted you're not anchored to a company per se, but like you have your users, you have your customers and there's more positive feedback than there is negative. Obviously negative, you know, Alhamdulillah, most of the negative feedback we've been getting is actually stuff that we can solve. It's not that big of a deal. But just seeing people like, you know, sending you like, you know, MashaAllah, MaTabarakAllah is like the best thing in the world. And, you know, I would love using this. I love using this app. I love what you guys are doing. That feedback is honestly all you need as a founder to, you know, just to motivate you and keep, keep going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree with that. You have to celebrate the small wins, right, along the road. For us as well, that's absolutely vital. And I think it's a great signal as well, right, for the company or for the project that you're working on where, you know, someone random just reaches out and says, you know, you're doing a great job, keep it up. Because there's actually a very, very high bar for someone to do that. Because like most people can't be bothered to leave a review or anything. So for them to try and email you, I think that says something. So Anas, what does Tartil actually do? I'd love you to explain that to our audience. Yeah, that's a good question, actually. We had an identity crisis about two years ago, um, back in 2015. <laughs> like after the Tartil challenge, we're like, who are we? What are we going to do? So just to give you some background, initially, we wanted to be a nonprofit corporation. We'd run on donations. It's like your typical Islamic project supported by the community whatever it is we realized two things one is the potential two is like the support and the sustainability of the project so as an ai company as you probably know ai isn't the cheapest thing to work with you have compute you have training you have data you have storage and all that stuff a typical SaaS company can spin up you know right now you know mashallah there's a lot of dev tools out there that make it so easy for you to just you know spin up a website spin up an api and you know, you're live in, in one week, not even. And so you can quickly iterate and ship products fast. With AI, especially when it's something that hasn't been touched and like hasn't been explored as much. The space of image recognition and I think NLP has been explored, you know, greatly because it's actually very accessible to operate on images and text. But the space of speech recognition still hasn't been explored much because of the difficulty of the domain. It's not easy to take, you know, this time varying signal and feed it into a model and train it to recognize something that's actually legible. With NLP and stuff, you can usually get away with it. I don't know if you've tried the GPT-3 model from like OpenAI, but like usually it just outputs gibberish. You can fine tune it so it's actually working and giving you something, but like in general, it's gonna output gibberish. And you know, you get the same thing with, you know, speech recognition. And without diving into too much of the details, like you can't do that with the Quran. You can't like output gibberish for the Quran. So it's it's a very difficult space. So we're like, okay, if we want 
this project to succeed and we actually want to provide value to Muslims, this has to be a for-profit entity. Like there has to be some way to sustain the company. So instead of being a nonprofit, we decided to be a for-profit company. But we also didn't want to be like a typical C-Corp. So instead, we decided to go down being a benefit corporation, which is basically a mission-based for-profit company as opposed to focusing on maximizing shareholder value. You know, with that being said, that kind of gave us the context like, okay, what we're building is basically a technology company that's going to provide value for Muslims in the general sense. More specifically, we're basically taking artificial intelligence applications, applying them and delivering value to Muslims right now in the Quran. But we have obviously like, you know, a grander vision where, you know, we do want to build technology enabled solutions to help Muslims with their lifestyle. So we're starting right now with the Quran, helping people build better habits in the Quran, giving them real-time feedback, and inshallah, you know, in the next few months, being able to actually correct their recitation. But there's a lot of different verticals that we can operate into. One interesting one, we discovered this Ramadan, content creators, so Qaris, they spend hundreds of dollars and, you know, many hours a day creating Quran content in terms of like, you know, putting the text, the audio, the reverb, all that stuff. All that can be automated. And using the speech recognition we have can basically build a solution where they just upload their video, upload their audio, and then we give them like an Instagram post and they can post it. Masajid, during Tarawih, they want to show what the imam is reciting and not everyone understands Arabic. So there's a few mosques in Michigan that basically deployed Tartil as part of their live stream. So they'd have the imam and then Tartil would be deployed on the side and it'd show, you know, in real time what the imam was reciting along with the translation. So that helped a lot of people, you know, actually follow along with the imam and listen, listen and understand what he was saying. Even when I was in the message and the local message here, I was surprised, you know, to actually see someone holding the mushaf and Tarsil was recognizing what he was saying. I couldn't get it to work for some reason. My microphone wasn't picking the guy up, but uh, picking the imam up. But for him, like he was, he was following along and it was, you know, it was working perfectly for him. So there's a lot of opportunity to bring value to Muslims in this space. And, you know, we basically want to do that. There's one, one could also argue there's also space in like the halal industry and, you know, fashion and whatnot, but the market that we believe that hasn't been tapped into is, is you know, serving the Quran and Muslims, you know, working in the Quran. That sounds absolutely amazing. And I think you've started, you know, clearing the grass, right, off, like, because my neighbor had a really, like, overgrown garden. Now he started gardening for the first time, I think, ever. He's got the ground ready now. So you've got rid of all the grass. So I think you've got rid of a lot of the grass. So you're starting to clear it. But inshallah, I think lots of positive things are going to emerge out of it. And I'm excited to see where you guys go with it as well, inshallah. The final thing, I guess, that because, you know, we've already, I guess, we've covered the the topic about where you're going with Dardil. The final thing that I wanted to ask you about was what are the ethical and moral considerations around religion and tech? And I guess to frame the discussion there's, I guess, you know, firstly, I'd love to hear your thoughts generally about what stuff has come up as part of your own work on this. But then also, secondly, we, I guess we can dive into what big tech and people like the Muslim pro scandal and all of that stuff after that as well. Yeah, that's actually exactly how I was going to phrase it is like how we're, we're approaching it and what, what we've seen outside. So one of the first things we agreed on internally is just no ads. Absolutely no ads ads are a bane of our existence and it just ruins the whole experience you can have it with most other apps but like with the quran and like 
most of the Quran apps that I use, I think there's only two out there that don't have ads. Like you're reading the Quran and all of a sudden like you get lewd pictures or you get something that's completely unrelated and just breaks your whole flow and you can't focus. And then as you notice with the Muslim pro scandal, really what's happening is just like a bunch of data collection that is absolutely not necessary. So that's a separate thing kind of related to ads. Um, that's something we agreed on is like, we'll never introduce ads into the, into the application. And I'll, and I'll get to that in a second. But the second thing in terms of the AI perspective, there's been a recent push to kind of get, you know, ethical AI as like a theme for researchers to consider when they're developing AI applications. So for example, being able to recognize people with different pigments or skin color so that the AI can actually recognize their faces properly. I don't know if you've heard of like the Twitter scandal, but like, you know, usually it would basically the cropping of the Twitter images would focus on, you know, someone who's white as opposed to someone who's like, you know, of African-American background. So there's a huge push in the AI community to get two things, which is A, the model to not have any biases towards its predictions and B, the training data that the model is on, like that has to be diverse and essentially varied so that it accounts for all the situations that's going to be operated in. Because the model is only good as the data it's trained on. There's speech recognition models for English, for Arabic, for Turkish. But when you apply them to the Quran, that domain, you know, in general, it really doesn't work well. So that's why people, you know, they find the right data set to train their model on so that they can actually get, you know, good results in the domain they want to apply. And so that's the same thing we're doing here. Someone could say, okay, why don't you use Apple speech to text or Google speech to text API? We could use it, but bluntly just sucks. It doesn't work on the Quran. So that's basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to collect this very data set to make sure that when we do speech recognition, it's able to generalize and you know support a wide variety of the Muslim population. And one thing we're doing now is we're trying to segment um, our data so we can identify, we can create models tailored towards specific individuals. So if someone is, you know, male or female, you know, there's a model tailored towards that demographic. Someone with a certain, you know, dialect or heritage, that's a model in that dialect. We haven't been able to explore that space much. Right now we're focusing on just generalizing the model, but that's one consideration. The more, I guess, also pressing thing is data privacy. Obviously, you know, after the Muslim Pro scandal, a lot of people have been very wary about Muslim applications. In fact, we've seen this ourselves. We ran a Facebook campaign this Ramadan with Tertil and people who had no idea what Tertil was, had no idea about Quran apps, they would just post on Facebook. They're like, you know, don't download this app. It steals your data. You know, don't be the next Muslim pro. And after we talk with these people, they're like, oh, okay, this isn't Muslim pro. Like, you know, this is something else. But people now have like a second reflex, like Muslim app is stealing your data. And in fact, actually, there was a security report. I forgot by who it was. Most religious applications are really just data hives. Like they looked at Christian, Jewish, and Quran applications. And like, it was like 70 or 80% just log data to random people, mostly because of the ads. So that's something to keep in mind. So that's why we didn't introduce ads. And that's why the data that any data we collect, it's all stored in house. It's not public. It's not shared with anyone. We've been actively working on trying to make sure, you know, access is limited especially when we label the data and, and try to, um, you know, label it for our training purposes, um, is basically treating this as like an amana for our users. This isn't shared publicly. This isn't shared with anyone. And no one operates on, can access this data in any shape or form. 
the Tercio side. It was a bit long. But in terms of like what we've seen in, in industry, obviously there's the Muslim Pro scandal. A few projects have came out of that. I think the most notable one recently, you've probably heard of it, is Pillars. Um, it's basically a simple, very simple, you know, just a that app. When I spoke with their founder, and I like what they're doing, is like their focus on just being a very simple, like, you know, and then apps privacy focus, no data, no nothing, like no data collection, no nothing. They do have a few plans to, you know, support community events and whatnot. But, you know, the focus I think right now should be for Muslim applications to kind of like regain the trust of, of our users and like our customer base and, you know, being able to serve them properly. No, Jazakallah. Yeah, I've, I've come across the Pillars app as well. I think it's pretty cool. I've not actually used it, but I, I do like the design. I think they've done a great job there. I guess the other interesting trend here, and maybe this is one to wrap up with, is you know how apparently Facebook and you know some of these larger big tech companies are trying to serve religious communities. There've been a lot of overtures to, particularly the you know evangelical Christians and just Christians generally, but also Muslim and Jewish and Sikh and all sorts of communities, because they see this apparently as like a growth area where they can perhaps, you know, become that kind of hub for these religious communities. I'd love to hear your sense as someone who's worked in, you know, big tech. Yeah, I think Muhammad also can talk about this because he's, he's worked at Facebook. I'm lucky for that Twitter, but I think they shouldn't enter that space. They're just going to follow that because in the end, they're a for-profit company looking to serve their shareholders. I mean, alhamdulillah, like, we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala like, keeps our intentions pure and like, the folks who come after us, inshallah, like make sure that whatever we do, we're serving, you know, the best interests of Muslims and not just, you know, making money. But for these companies in the end, it's going to be about making money. And as you probably know, all the algorithms or most of the algorithms that power like Facebook and Twitter are in like YouTube, they're designed to increase engagement time. And that's going to be done in any means possible Whether It's posting, you know, things that are very controversial and keeping people in the app and, you know, spreading lies. I'm very concerned to see that if big tech is going to move into this religious space, it's, you know, there should be some pushback from us, like not to use it. There's a lot of other platforms that people can use. I think one that I've seen recently is like Collab Bean, like that's, I think, a Malaysia-based startup. They work on developing essentially like a community platform for Masajid. But in terms of big tech moving into like the religious space, I haven't seen anything like anything tangible, but all I know is I feel like nothing good can come out of it. And there needs to be a bigger discussion on, you know, ethical AI. I mean, you've seen, I think you've heard of like Google basically firing Amar Allah and um, what's her name? Their lead like ethics AI researcher. You know, the moment you don't sing to their tune, you know, you get the boot, you just get, you get kicked out. I mean, even like, that wasn't even entering the AI space. That was just like entering the ethics space. Like he was just explaining something about his own ethics in line with Google's like, you know, culture, but he got kicked out. For these companies, the bottom line is not delivering value to their customers. It's making money. And so they're going to exploit whatever scenario they get, they have possible to, to make money, unfortunately. Yeah, um, I guess on, on that massive bombshell, I should probably wrap up. I encourage everyone to, you know, check out Tartil. Uh, you can download it on uh, pretty much everything, right, these days. And uh, do you have like a mailing list or something like that? I've 
We do. So if you go to download.tertiel.ai, that'll take you straight to like the App Store or Play Store link, depending on, you know, your your device. And then when you sign up, you'll automatically join our, our mailing list if you decide to. If you decide to. You decide, you know, if we collect any data or if we collect any like, you know, aggregate metrics or whatever. So the power is in, in your hands. But yeah, when you sign up in the app, you basically you basically get audited out of our mailing list. We have a few, you know, exciting features where we're releasing soon in terms of goals and progress tracking and challenges. We're trying to add a few social elements in the meantime, like while working on correction. There's a lot of unique features we're building where you can set, you know, like a daily challenge or a weekly challenge for yourself. And then essentially at some point, you kind of have like the Apple Health or Apple Watch style challenges where like you share your challenges with your friends, you work together. I'm putting under the theme, so keeping people incentivized to to work towards, you know, reaching the Quran. Amazing. Anas, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I wish you all the best with Dardin. And uh, I look forward to, uh, you know, maybe getting you on in a few years' time and hearing about progress and, you know, what's happened since we last spoke. Inshallah. Yeah, hopefully next time we'll, we'll be able to actually visit the UK and uh, this COVID business won't be, uh, won't be much of an issue. Definitely, definitely, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.